From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 2712985 you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook live you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you have come to the realization that Father John Tregilio has either lost a ton of weight, or he's not here today. <laughs> and actually, it's the latter. Uh, Father John had a funeral today, um, which is something I want to talk about here at the beginning of the program, how blessed we are to have the the ministerial priesthood uh, at our disposal as Catholics. Uh, but... Before we get to that, filling in in a rare double-dip treat for us. You know, it was always a big deal when I was growing up that uh, if you – a doubleheader in baseball. They don't play them anymore. Right, basically. right. Basically, but, boy, a doubleheader. You go a doubleheader, two for the price of one. It was like there was nothing greater t- to a young boy who was a baseball fan. And we've got a doubleheader a doubleheader as Dr. David Anders is sitting in. Uh, doing an extra hour of radio t- today, filling in for Father John Tregilio. How are you? Jack, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. So, you know, Father uh, John is doing a, a funeral uh, today, and I just wanted to talk a little bit at the outset of the program, uh, especially from your perspective as not only an evangelical, but a militantly anti-Catholic evangelical, uh, at what a grace we we have in the sacraments, and in those who have been formed to provide them to us on earth. Boy, you, you said that. I tell you, you know, as you know, when you're in a Protestant land, there's a huge emphasis placed on the question of knowing for sure that you go to heaven when you die. And, uh, and so the funeral often, you know, looks like a... Uh, uh, like a canonization mass, you know, in terms of, well, not the mass, but the, it's a sort of group canonization. But underlying that, of course, is this this profound need to be able to say of myself, well, I know for sure I'm going to go to heaven. And the problem, of course, is that, it's, you know, you can you can assert that all day long, but uh, even even the best Protestants recognize, well, there's such a thing as spurious faith and and people can fall away and so forth. And so you're, there, there's a... there's a. But, but David, they were never really converted. That's what they say. That's what they say. They say they were never really converted. So, so it leaves the Protestant in a little bit of a bind. 
of, well, hey, you know, I know for sure I'm going to heaven, unless I'm one of those people that has, you know, fake faith. A friend of mine put it this way. He said, the elect know for sure they're going to heaven, and I might be one of them. Right? <laughs> and uh, and it, it's a real dilemma. You know, you kind of vacillate between presumption and despair. And when I became Catholic, one, you know, the Catholic Church does not teach that you can know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die. What it does teach is that you can know for sure where grace is on offer. And that's something the Protestant never knows. See, that's the difference, That in, particularly in Calvinism, which I came from. The Calvinist position is that Christ didn't even die for everyone. He just died for the elect, and a small number of people that is. And, uh, and so you, you, you could never say to someone, if you're, if you're Calvinist, if you're Presbyterian, Christ died for you. You can't know that if you're Presbyterian. The Catholic position is Christ died for everyone, and the means of grace, it's not some secret transaction that takes place in the heart. They're objective, they're visible, they're tangible, they're called the sacraments. And so just lay hold of the sacraments. Stay in the fellowship of the church. That's the safest place for you to be. And I, I was privileged to witness the holy death of a Catholic priest one time, my good friend who you know, Father Lambert Greenan. And uh, uh, I used to... Um, I used to do this show on Thursdays. That was he was I was already doing Call to Communion at that point, but it was a Thursday, and I left Call to Communion Radio here at UWTN, and I went straight to Casmaria Convent and Retreat House where he was in in the process of dying, and uh, he had all the sisters were there with him, all of his friends and, and well wishers were there with him, and uh, and boy the line of priests and bishops like you wouldn't imagine. Everybody come out and wanted to anoint him and give him Holy Communion. They wanted to give him viaticum. They wanted to give him the apostolic pardon. You know and it was the best attended death you could possibly imagine, and he expired with those who loved him around him praying the rosary, and uh, and the confidence that we had, it wasn't just in a subjective sense that, well, you know, he lived a good life, but he was accompanied by the church uh, to the very doors of death, and that's one of the greatest privileges that we have as Catholics, and it was a profound comfort. I turned to one of my children that was with me, and I said, don't ever forget this day. You have witnessed something amazing. This is how we all want to die. You know, I've had the just, uh, it, it's interesting because I used to talk to people all the time, and this is purely in a secular sense, that I never really knew anybody until I was a pretty old person, you know, probably past 50, I would need to think about it, before anybody I was really close to had died. Wow, yeah. Let alone being there when they died. Sure, I sure. Mean, forget about that. You know, now since then I've made up for some lost time, as Absolutely, we all do, as yeah. we as we get older, but, you know, having gone through it with my late wife, Susie, uh, being with her when she uh, passed away, my mom, my dad, Johnette's dad, just in the last four or five years, and um, there's not, until you have experienced it, there's nothing that can, there's nothing that can describe or surpass the feeling, I mean, you want to talk about knowing what you know, when you're in the presence of someone who's dying a happy death, as defined by the church, you know it and it affects you. Yes, yes, well said. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Uh, Sabeth is uh, writing in today wanting to know, I was at Mass on Sunday and surprised when an announcement was made about the option to have a gluten-free host. Not low gluten, completely gluten-free. I was wondering if this is allowed, 
and will gluten-free hosts become Jesus also? I think maybe that announcement may have been a little bit misstated. Probably misstated. So in order to be a valid Eucharist, thanks for the question, by the way. In order to be a valid Eucharist, uh, the host must be uh, manufactured from, from wheat, right? And so if you have wheat in there, there is going to be at least a scintilla of gluten. Now, it's possible chemically to reduce that a lot, but there's going to be uh, just a scintilla of, of gluten left behind. If it's a genuinely gluten-free host in that it's manufactured from something other than wheat, then it's not a valid Eucharist, and it's not valid matter. It can't even be validly consecrated, so you wouldn't, you'd just be receiving a rice cracker at that point, not Jesus. Yeah. Um, Betsy would like to know, how does one acquire the title of Monsignor? And why would a priest want to be a Monsignor? Well, one doesn't anymore, right? Pope Francis has uh, has eliminated the title. He's grandfathered in the people who were already Monsignors. He's not un-Monsignoring anybody, but no, that title will not be granted anymore. And in the past, it was an honorific given uh, to diocesan priests, typically, who had served well and for a long time, and they were sort of elder statesmen, if you will, in the, in the, uh, in the church. And that was how it was granted. And so, you know, a bishop would appeal to the Vatican and say, could, uh, could you grant this title to Father so-and-so? He's done a great job, and he's, you know, he's 75 years old now, and we'd like to recognize him. You know, uh, recently the new bishop was appointed to the Diocese of Harrisburg in Pennsylvania. Okay. Bishop's, bishop Sr. His bishop's last name is Sr. Okay, okay. And so you know what he was before he became a bishop. Which is a true story, a reality. Uh, no, I don't. He was Monsignor Senior. Monsignor Senior. <laughs> I knew a girl one time uh, who married a, a girl named Allison who married a guy whose last name was Allison, and she became Allison Allison. Allison Allison. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you have it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We're just getting started on a Monday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio presiding at a funeral today, so he is not with us. But fear not, we have Dr. David Anders in the flesh, ready to answer your phone calls. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Dr. David Anders sitting in for Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN's Religious Catalog has got some great ideas for summer reading. Summer reading for kids. Uh, One of those choices, What is Heaven?, it's a scriptural picture book that is visually stunning, revealing brilliant colors found in the Bible, and uh, one of the many great summer reading suggestions for kids from EWTN's Religious Catalog. To learn more about these choices, visit EWTNRC.com today. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open lines at 833-288-3986. Rob is first up today in Grand Rapids, Michigan, listening on Holy Family Radio. Rob, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you. Um, I was talking to a Protestant friend who was talking about the same subject that you introduced the show with, and the passage that he used to defend the Protestant view was, um, if they go out from us, they were never of us. And I wondered your take on that. Yeah, thanks. So let's back up for the sake of the listeners and put a larger context on this. The question is, um, when, when people fall away from the faith, can we say of them, as many Protestants do, well, they were obviously never saved to begin with, their faith wasn't genuine. And the problem with that is that the majority of the New Testament that addresses this question of apostasy, and not only of apostasy, but of gross immorality, addresses it to people who the text assumes manifestly have the Spirit of God. So, you know, St. Paul, for example, writes to the Galatians and says, how can you how can you, having received the Spirit, now turn away from the promise of grace that you received and go off and follow some other gospel? That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. It's addressed to people that Paul knows personally to have received the Spirit of God, but that are now in danger of shipwrecking their faith. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about those who've tasted the heavenly gift and then turn away. Um, Saint, uh, Second Peter chapter 2 talks about those who um, ha- better not to have entered the way of righteousness than to enter it and then turn back. And so there are multiple places in the Gospels, where, well, the epistles rather, where we encounter this, this problem of apostasy or gross immorality or somehow shipwrecking a faith that's been given to us as a real threat and a real possibility. And when it comes to the jo- Johannine texts, um, if they weren't, they went out from us. They weren't really among us. Well, that there's a couple ways you could take that. One would be, well, that might have been locally true of the Johannine Church, right? There, there might have been. I mean, Paul talks about false brethren that have snuck in among us to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ. I mean, there is the condition. There is a situation of an insincere or dis, disingenuous conversion. Um, it's a famous story uh, that we only know from, uh, you'll know how we know in a minute, there's a famous story of a man who was a member of the Communist Party who infiltrated the Dominican order in Spain, um, uh, quite literally, in order to corrupt it. And he wanted to become a priest, but he had no faith. He was an atheist, and he wanted to destroy the church. And he, he went to, you know, in, in passing through the ranks to become a uh, uh, final professed religious and ultimately a priest. He had to go to confession, went to a spiritual director, and in confession, he said, well, I just want you to know that, um, you know, I, um, I'm an atheist and I'm here to destroy the church, but you're bound by the seal of the confessional, so I know you're not going to reveal that to anybody else. And, of course, the priest didn't. And when they raised the question, does anybody know a reason why this guy can't become a Dominican? The confessor, you know, he couldn't reveal what he learned in the confessional. So he's like, no, nah, he's a good guy, does what he's told, you know, knowing all along that he was insincere. Well, eventually, the guy is ordained to the priesthood. But before his ordination, he goes back to the same confessor and says, you know, your fidelity to the confessional and to the to the seal of the confession has persuaded me. <laughs> now I, I really do believe and I really do want to become a Catholic priest to serve, you know, to serve the people of God. And we know the story, not from the confessor, but this man who told his story later on. 
Um, but there's a case of somebody who legitimately snuck into the church with evil motives, you know, and that's, I think, the condition in the Johannine epistles. I mean, he talks about church officials that are there out of ambition and jealousy and rivalry and not out of sincerity. That's not the same thing as the apostasy that's contemplated in uh, in Galatians or in Hebrews or in Second Peter. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental problem with that Protestant uh, position is it proceeds from an understanding of salvation as if salvation were something that were granted to you at a discrete point in time in this life uh, that you could have certainty about, right? Now, that's the fundamental Protestant perspective that, you know, go forward to the Billy Graham crusade or give my life to Christ and then, quote-unquote, I'm saved. That's really not the biblical point of view. It's not Jesus's point of view. Christ says the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And what we mean by salvation is that I will go to heaven when I die, that I'm preserved from the wrath of God to come, and that I enjoy eternal bliss with him forever in heaven. And manifestly, the verdict on that isn't granted until I die. In the book of Revelation, again, says, Revelation 20, that it's when we die, God opens the book of life and judges men according to their deeds, those who've done good to eternal life and those who've done evil to eternal perdition. And Jesus says, many will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Clearly, these are people that thought they were, as it were, saved. But Christ uh, repudiates that self-judgment and says, you didn't do what you were supposed to do, so you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But it's Christ who's the judge of that. Not, not, I'm not the judge of my own conscience in that way. Christ is. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. All right, I feel like I'm about to give a bear a big full honeypot with this next question. All right. Cecilia writes in, how can we argue against penal substitution? Oh, yeah. So let's define our terms, okay? Uh, a lot of Catholics are like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about, Anders? So within the Protestant tradition, especially the Reformed tradition, the Presbyterian or Calvinist tradition, there's an understanding of why Christ died. And it's not the way Catholics think about the death of Christ. It's, it's, it's really unique to this tradition. Here's what Calvinists think about the death of Christ. <clears throat> they think that by sinning, uh, each individual has incurred a debt that he can never pay, and it's a debt of punishment. And, and to be just, God must extract payment for that debt. He, he can't simply forgive the debt. He has to extract payment for the debt, or else he's unjust. And that creates a dilemma both for God and the individual. It creates a dilemma for God, according to the Calvinist, because God would really like to save this soul, uh, but he can't because he can't—the the person can never pay the debt that would be necessary to be acquitted. Um, and so it's a dilemma for the person because there's literally nothing they can do about it. And it's a dilemma for God because he can't violate his own norms of justice. And so then, in the Calvinist position, God has a great idea. I know what I'll do. I'll let Christ pay the debt of punishment on that individual's behalf. And Christ, being a divine person with infinite merits, can absolutely uh, pay the debt of just over infinite punishment that's required. He's sufficient. He's up to the job, as it were. And so then what God does, again in the Calvinist view, is he imputes to Christ, that is to say he reckons to Christ's account, the sins of the elect only. So those whom God has decided to save, and not everybody, but just the elect, 
he lays their sins on Christ and punishes Christ on their behalf. All right, so he doesn't do this for everyone. It's, it's part of the theory that Christ does not die for the whole world. He just dies for the elect. And, uh, and so what you have is a situation where God, in order to save a fraction of mankind, literally punishes the innocent and acquits the guilty. That's the, that's the reform view. That is atrocious. That's horrific. That's tyrannical. That's irrational. That's offensive. And that has alienated many, 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 many people from the Christian faith. This is one of the doctrines that is lampooned, for example, by some of the new atheist writers. When they caricature Christianity, they take this image of the bloodthirsty God of Calvinism as the one they want to reject. Well, I'm there rejecting him along with them, because that's not the Catholic view of God or the atonement. So let's unpack this. Um, first of all, God can absolutely forgive sins without, without requiring uh, that Christ bear the debt of punishment you know, to, to, the, to, to the extent of suffering the alienation of hell. That's another part of the reform system. They think that Christ suffers the alienation of the damned. Okay? Absolutely he can forgive you. Absolutely. He could do it by divine fiat if he chose to. Um, also, God doesn't ever punish the innocent and acquit the guilty. He reconciles us to himself by changing us. Not by imputing our sins to Christ, but by taking our sins away, by making us righteous. And, you know, when you have a child, let's say your child is alienated from you with a hard heart and a rebellious spirit, and they've gone out and vandalized the family mailbox or something. And uh, you say, well, you know, Johnny, I'm very upset with you. And then Johnny comes to his senses, and he comes back and says, Dad, I'm really sorry. And he's genuinely repentant. And his repentance is a turning of the will back to his father, seeking relationship. In that point, the father is not required by some uh, universal standard of justice to go out and murder his older brother. He can simply say, okay, we're good now. You've reconciled to me. Right? That the character of God is more like that of an actual father who is able to reconcile the wayward soul that turns back to him. So where does the death of Christ fit into this? Christ, by his own death, merits for us the grace that affects our conversion. He merits for us the grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes in and turns our heart back to, back to God. And Christ's sacrifice to God is intrinsically pleasing. It is a sacrifice of satisfaction, of atonement, just not of penal substitution. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. Catholic Radio in South Carolina is celebrating their 20th year with EWTN. They serve Greenville, Spartanburg, Greer, Charleston, and Hilton Head. Congratulations to Michael Brennan, who's been with that group from the very beginning, and his team from all of us here at EWTN Radio. Pick up the phone and give us a call. We've got wide open phone lines for you. Dr. David Andrews filling in for Father John Tregilio today. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
1-205-321-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 it's EWTN's open line monday with Dr. David Anders filling in for Father John Tregilio This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Right back to the phones we go. Next stop for us is Normal, Illinois. Colton is a first-time caller listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Colton, thanks so much for calling. You're on with Dr. Anders. Hello. Hey. How are you? Great. How about you? I'm doing all right. Um... I've got a couple questions. Sure. Yeah. So I was just listening to um, you talking here on the radio, and basically, I I'd like to just hear a quick gospel outline, um, if possible. You, meaning, I think what you mean by that is, how does a person actually come into right relationship with God and die and go to heaven? Yeah. Yeah, okay, fantastic. We can do that. So the the Catholic position on this, and I think the biblical one too, is that Christ reconciles us to God. Christ reconciles us to God. And he does so in several ways, and all of them are complementary. So to to be sure, Christ teaches us the way of truth. And he he Christ's teaching is an essential part of his atoning work. We have to believe what Christ says and order our lives accordingly. So when we read something like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, or uh, the other uh, exhortations in the Gospels, then we orient our lives accordingly, and in doing so, we're following right teaching, and that helps put us into right relationship with God. We follow Christ's example. So Christ uh, loved the poor and the dispossessed and the alienated, and we're called to follow him unto the death on a cross. I mean, Christ died a martyr's death in, uh, in obedience to his Father, in obedience to the truth, and we're also called to give our lives in service to God and the love of neighbor unto death, and that's, that's also one of, the, one of the modalities, if you will, of, of how we come into right relationship with God. Uh, but Christ also died as a sacrifice, and uh, by his death, he merited the gift of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins, uh, which, are, uh, which are granted to the Church through faith and the sacraments. And so through faith in the sacraments, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our sins are forgiven, and our lives are transformed. Uh, the love of God is poured into our hearts, St. Paul says in Romans 5. Um, and in, in so doing, you know, Paul in Romans 2 talks about the circumcision of the heart. He's not a Jew who's a Jew outwardly, done in the body through the hands of men. He is a real Jew who's the one inwardly, whose circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. And the one who walks by the Spirit of God will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Uh, you know, Christ says it's not tithing, mint, dill, and cumin. It's love and justice and mercy that puts you in right relationship. And those, those, those virtues are infused into our heart uh, by, uh, by the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about having the mind of Christ. The gift of the Spirit is the mind of Christ. We come to see the world through Christ's eyes. We come to be little Christs, other Christs in the world. Uh, and in, in doing so, we're able to live the life of love, the life of charity, 
And of course, God himself is charity. God is love. And so reconciliation with God takes place supernaturally by this pouring of God's love into our hearts so that we can we can actually follow that teaching of Christ, follow that example of Christ, and be Christ to other people. Um, now, there's, a, there's another element, I mean, there's a lot of elements in this. We, we talk about, and Paul talks about dying with Christ in baptism and being raised again with him to new life, that through our union with Christ and faith in the sacraments, there's actually a destruction of the old order. Uh, we, we become new men and women in Jesus. Christ talks about being born again, uh, being given a new life, and that comes about supernaturally through our union with him. Um, scripture talks about the destruction of, of the law, of sin, of death, of hell, and the devil, uh, that our old enemy, Satan, is defanged, as it were, and we're liberated uh, from a state of uh, moral captivity and spiritual blindness to the freedom of the children of God. All, all of these are aspects uh, working complementary together uh, to give us a new life. Uh, in the Eastern Catholic Church, they talk about divinization. St. Peter says that uh, through the promises of Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, we become like God, uh, have, our, have uh, our minds and our wills, that in, which in us, which is made in the likeness and image of God, our, in our intellects and our moral freedom, refashioned after the likeness and image of Christ, that we come to share in the divine nature. Uh, all these things are from him who, who is to us grace and redemption and reconciliation. How's that, Colton? I mean, it was, it was all right, I guess. I'm still uh, caught up on uh, running this question, and it was, I, I guess uh, lay out kind of a little scenario here. If, if you were to die today and you were standing before Christ um, at the gates of heaven and he asked you why you should be in heaven, what would your answer be? First thing I'd ask him, first thing I'd ask him is, uh, has Colt never read James Kennedy? I think that's the first thing I'd ask him. But the second thing I'd ask uh, is, I would say, uh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, uh, and uh, if Christ said, Why should I let you in? I would say, Well, you know, you're certainly under no obligation to let me in. I, I mean, on my own, um, you know, I have no claim on everlasting bliss. That's that's Christ's munificence. That's Christ's benevolence toward me. His mercy towards me. It's the only claim I have on God, and uh, and so it would be, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, my my confidence, my hope in this life, flows from relationship to Jesus. That uh, you know, I have a, a manifest sign that I am in relationship with Him. Christ said, if we eat His flesh and drink His blood, we will have life. And uh, that um, that St. Paul, speaking of the church, says, whereas Christ's co-laborers, as if God was making his appeal through us, that through my communion with the church and the sacraments that Christ left behind, I have a real point of contact with, with Christ, with his person, with his body and blood, uh, with the fellowship of believers. And, uh, you know, by not walking away from that, by, by being faithful to the end, I have a real basis, a real uh, assurance of salvation and hope. Not certainty, because there's always the possibility of apostasy down the road, but as long as I maintain my fidelity to Christ, I have a real basis of assurance and confident hope in eternal life. Next up is Robert. He is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Robert, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Uh, hello. Um, I have been wanting to understand the uh, Roman Catholic view of the crucifixion, on the radio, they do say that the crucifixion is what saves us from sin. And uh, in this program, I know that you say that uh, he does it as a sacrifice of himself. 
and uh, he merits the Holy Spirit for it. But I don't see cause and effect here. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So, well, first of all, let me let me elaborate one point. Uh, the crucifixion is the passion of Christ is really the highlight of the work of redemption, but it's not the only thing that Christ does to redeem us. And it would be more accurate to speak of the incarnation, uh, every moment of Christ's human life, from his conception to his ascension, as given to us for the sake of our redemption. Um, crucifixion is an important part of that, but it's not the only part. And the 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 here's the cause and effect. Uh, it comes in a couple of different ways. So one, and I elucidated this earlier, is Christ comes and reveals to us the, the way of truth, uh, the way of the ethical life, the moral life that God demands. And so Christ's teaching is profoundly clarifying and illuminating. And that's an essential part of the, of the Christian message. You, can't, you cannot separate Christ from his teaching or redemption from following and obeying the teaching of Christ. That's what Jesus told the disciples, go make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Uh, the example of Christ as well is part of the redemptive process. So St. Peter says in 1 Peter, he says that Christ died leaving us as an, as an example that we might do likewise. Um, uh, th- there is a incorporation into Christ where Christ's personality is, as it were, infused within us, where we come to see the world through Christ's eyes. St. Paul talks about that as having the mind of Christ. Uh, Pope Francis, in one of his encyclicals, says that faith doesn't merely gaze at Jesus, but it comes to see the world through Christ's eyes. This is the transformation of the personality, the transformation of the human being that, uh, that Jesus talks about when he says that a man has to be born again. Um, the gift of the Holy Spirit um, is, uh, of course, profoundly mysterious, but the, the Holy Spirit is a divine person who, who uh, has a direct supernatural influence on our thinking and on our moral life uh, in a way that we can talk about as a kind of indwelling. Now, the Holy Spirit is not a substance like toothpaste that you can squeeze into a tube. Um, he doesn't indwell us in that manner, but he can dwell in us as the known is in the knower and the beloved is in the lover, where, where the ministry of the Spirit moves us to love Christ, to love God, to love neighbor, and that inward transformation, that indwelling of the Spirit makes us new men and women in God. Um, and uh, and uh, the, the merit aspect comes out, see this clearly in a passage like Philippians 2 or Acts chapter 2, where, where the, the apostle writes that Christ, because of his humble obedience unto death, was rewarded by God, exalted to the right hand. St. Peter says, because of this, he now pours out on the church this gift of the Holy Spirit that you now see, which makes us new men and women in him. So Christ earns that for us. Now, you know, is that obscure? I mean, is that is that an oddity? Is that strange? Could you predict that? Could you find that under a microscope or deduce that from a consideration of the constellations? Of course not. I mean, this is the this is the the, the mystery hidden from ages past now revealed to Christ's apostles and prophets that God elects Christ to give himself in this sacrificial way, uh, dying the martyr's death on the cross, not not you know, turning the other cheek, following his own divine command when assaulted by wicked and evil men. And uh, his humble obedience unto death is pleasing to God, is meritorious to God, and as the reward for his obedience, among other things, he grants the members of Christ's body, which is the Church, this transformative gift of the Holy Spirit. Next up is Greg. He is driving through the great state of Kansas listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Greg, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, Dr. David Anders. How are you today? I'm great. How about you? Good. I didn't have a question. I just want to talk to you. No, I'm kidding. Hey, I've got this uh, 
I've got this guy, that a uh, good friend of mine, that he has just been baptized not too long ago, and uh, he's older, he's in his 60s, and I'm a convert into the Catholicism, and so we have these discussions back and forth. He goes to the Methodist Church, and uh, my family is actually Protestant, too, and so they have a real problem with uh, infant baptism. And, you know, it's kind of the, I also have a brother-in-law that's Mennonite, and so with the Anabaptist tradition, uh, they believe that, that it makes sense to them that you should be at an age of reason to be able to make a, a decision, be baptized, if that's what's uh, one of the, one of the uh, steps to salvation. Could you elaborate on that and the questions that I have with these people? Yeah, please? sure. Appreciate it. <clears throat> so first of all, let's just get one matter clear. Catholic Church teaches that every child who's of the age of reason, whether they have been baptized or not, must choose to follow Christ. So if you're baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church, and then you, you, know, you, you hit age 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and you never give a thought to God for the rest of your life, your baptism is of no effect in you. Right, it's it's uh, you know it's like um, it's like getting a passport and never traveling abroad. You know you don't you're not using the gift for for which it was given or for the purpose for which it was given, and it won't save you. Baptism alone will not get you into heaven. And the engagement that a Catholic must have in his life of faith is a rational, free engagement, and that's that's true of every Catholic. Um, and in a sense, it's true of children and infants too. I mean, the faith is professed vicariously on their behalf. Um, but uh, but it's still faith. It's it, the sacraments are sacraments of faith. They are a visible demonstration of the faith that saves us. And um, so we don't we don't dispute the importance of a, of, of personal engagement. Here's the difference: the doctrine of infant baptism teaches that an infant can become a member of Christ. Now, for all of us, faith is a gift. Faith comes to us from the outside. Faith is given to us supernaturally through the Holy Spirit. It's not something I choose for myself. Um, it's given to me. And, I mean, I, I can cooperate with that gift, but it ultimately it comes from God. That's true of infants, too. They can also be incorporated into Christ gratuitously and receive Christian nurture and upbringing and the teaching of the faith and, and the prayers of the Church and the nurture of the Christian community to facilitate that rational engagement with the faith as they grow older, that, that element of Christian nurture that's there. Um, baptism has a real effect in the spiritual life. This is a Catholic doctrine, whereby original sin is washed away, uh, sanctifying grace is infused into the soul, we become members of Christ, we become priests in the Church, able to offer our lives in sacrifice. All those things are given to us in baptism in a kind of seed form, and they grow and develop and bear fruit over time with proper nurture and the cooperation of faith. As far as the sort of the doctrine in Revelation, I mean, it's St. Peter himself who says in Acts 2 that the promise of repentance, of forgiveness, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is, as he puts it, for you and for your children. It's for you and for your children. And that's why in Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer is converted, it's his whole household that's baptized, not just the adults there, it's everybody. Um, you know, the ancient world would have found utterly baffling the idea that that people could make a private and individualistic transaction with God apart from their family or kind of social contract. I mean, that's, that's just a very modern way of thinking about religious life. Your ancient uh, Hebrew, your ancient Judean, always thought in terms of a covenant people, of a, of a, of a corporate engagement. And that's, that's been the way in the Christian faith for a very, very long time. So this idea that, 
you know, that it has to be my own individual conscious engagement uh, that is the hinge point. Uh, that's just a that's just kind of a false modern Western way of thinking about religious life. Now, there can be moments in an individual's life that are hinge points like that. There can be conversion moments in the life of an adult Catholic, someone who's lived a Catholic life more or less, and then they come to a kind of crisis and they say, you know, I'm, I'm going to double down on my Catholic life and take this thing seriously and really get my moral life in order. We talk about that as a conversion. That's a true conversion. St. Francis had a true conversion. St. Augustine had a true conversion. It's just not the beginning of the Christian life. It's a moment in the Christian life. It's one that can occur multiple times, uh, but it's not the be-all and end-all of Christian life. Be sure to join us for Cresta in the afternoon, this afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Chad Bauman talks about the rise of anti-Christian violence in India and much, much more. That's Cresta in the afternoon, this afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Still time for your calls, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is uh, Veronica in Brandon, South Dakota listening on Real Presence Radio. Veronica, you're on with Dr. David Anders. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. What can we do for can you? Can you hear me? Yes, 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 ma'am. Okay. Um, two things. I was baptized Catholic. I went to Catholic schools, and um, I was getting a divorce, and I went to the confessional, and I explained to the priest I was in the getting a divorce, and he literally kicked me out of the confessional and said, you don't belong here. And that just broke my heart. And then I went back to the church, and I went to a confessional, and this priest asked me a sexual, actual question, which was so inappropriate. And anyway, I got back to the Catholic faith, Wholeheartedly, I devote myself to Christ every day. Um, my main question is, I was listening on EWTN, and a lady, or somebody, yeah, a lady called in, and these elderly people that were Christians in a nursing home, but not Catholic, they couldn't give them communion Yet the other people were Catholic, they gave communion, and most people didn't quite understand. And I have so much compassion for these people. Why is it that they can't, at this point in their life, receive that communion, receive Christ? Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. <clears throat> Let me say at the outset that I'm terribly sorry about the rocky path that you had um, in and out of the church, and the mistreatment, the pastoral mal malpractice that you received in the confessional, that's just terrible. <clears throat> and Pope Francis uh, wrote a book about the confessional in which he chided priests for not taking seriously the fact that they have people's hearts in their hands when they're in the confessional, and you have to be so sensitive to folks. And, and the, the goal here is reconcile them to God, not chase them away. So I, I'm, I'm just really terribly sorry you had that experience. Uh, I've had my share of unpleasant experiences in the confessional. Now, the vast majority of my confessional experiences have been overwhelmingly positive, but I've had one or two that stood out as pretty atrocious, and I know they can really be scarring, and so I'm deeply sorry for that. I, I wish that hadn't happened to you. Uh, when it comes to the question of non-Catholics receiving communion, whether or not they are in a nursing home, um, 
So, see, communion in the Catholic Church, yes, it's the reception of Christ's body and blood, but it's several other things besides. Um, it is the sign of our corporate unity as Catholics. St. Paul says that when we eat of this one loaf, we are one, we're one, eat of this one bread, we're one loaf, we're one body in Christ. And that we, it is necessary for us to agree on everything. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 1.10, agree on everything. And so when a person receives communion uh, as a Catholic, they are saying by their action, I believe the Catholic faith, I believe this is the church that Christ founded, uh, and I want to be in unity with my brothers and sisters in this faith that Christ gave us. And so when a non-Catholic who disbelieves the Catholic faith, and that's what it means to be a non-Catholic, you don't believe the Catholic faith. If you disbelieve the Catholic faith, um, if, you, if you go to communion, you, it's like you're testifying against yourself. You're, you're, it's a performative contradiction. You're saying by your actions something that you deny in your heart, and that's not a good spiritual condition to be in, and so the Church doesn't want to put people in the position of testifying against themselves. You know, If you don't actually believe the Catholic faith, don't say with your actions that you do. Now, there is a case where a Protestant can receive communion in the Catholic Church, if he has Catholic faith in the sacraments, so he, he doesn't disbelieve the Catholic faith, he just hasn't joined the Catholic Church, and he's in danger of death. When there's danger of death uh, and Catholic faith in the sacraments, then the Church permits the non-Catholic to receive Holy Communion. That is going to cover at least some cases in a nursing home. Many people in nursing homes are in imminent danger of death. Not all of them, but many of them. And if they have Catholic faith in the sacraments, then the nursing home patient in danger of death could receive Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. Now, um, uh, there's, there's one other consideration. Not all Catholics, Catholics, mind you, not all Catholics should go to Holy Communion. When should a Catholic refrain from communion? When he's conscious of grave sin. If I commit a grave sin and I go to communion without being reconciled to God, I'm not doing myself any favors. That communion's not bringing me closer to God. It's hardening my alienation from him because it's hardening my heart. Before I can safely go to communion, I need to go to confession. I need to receive absolution. Then I can go to communion safely. Now, the non-Catholic who doesn't believe the Catholic faith um, doesn't avail himself, can't avail himself, of the mercy of the tribunal of the confessional. And so the question, is he properly disposed, is she properly disposed to receive Holy Communion, can't be objectively ratified. And therefore, you know, St. Paul tells us, he says, don't judge people outside the church. Judge people inside the church, don't judge people outside. Many people think that when a Catholic says a non-Catholic can't receive Communion, oh, you're being so judgmental. Actually, we're positively refusing to pass judgment on that person. Because we can't pass judgment on you, we have no way to know whether you're properly disposed. Now, once you are Catholic, the Church can pass judgment on you. You can go in the confessional, and the priest says, yeah, I judge this person is contrite. I'm passing judgment. The judgment is, you're absolved. But if you're not Catholic, we're not going to pass judgment. Because we're not going to pass judgment, we can't safely give you communion, because we can't judge that you're properly disposed. Veronica is in Brandon, South Dakota. Well, we just talked. We just spoke with Veronica. God bless you, Veronica. Thanks so much for calling. Eileen, not 
in South Dakota, but in North Dakota, another first-time caller. She's also listening on Real Presence Radio. Eileen, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Hi. I have a question. Um, I really appreciate you taking my call, but my question has to deal with guilt, and I'm really not exactly sure how to put it into words other than to say that I have a person in my family that has um, cut out most everyone, including her parents and their extended family, of her life. And um, my aunt, who is would be her, her great-aunt, kind of called her out a little bit and said, you know, as your great-aunt, I have a responsibility to tell you when you are on the wrong track, and you are definitely on the wrong track. And um, this other family member said, well, I don't do guilt, and um, you don't know what you do when you judge my actions in my heart, and therefore I'm going to block your number now. God bless. And that was the end of it. And I thought to myself, clearly there's something very not healthy here, but there's got to be um, a role for our guilt. Obviously, we can have too much of it, but certainly there is the case that we don't, don't have enough of it. And so I'm just kind of curious as to what um, your response would be about guilt in, the, the, I don't know. Can I got I, you. I got you. I, I think I know what you're, you're aiming at. So here's, here's the problem that your relative has in my judgment this person doesn't understand the distinction between guilt and contrition guilt and contrition the way she's using the word guilt she means the psychological burden um, uh, the the suffering psychologically of, of being consumed with the sense that I've done something wrong and I can't shake that and it's terribly negative self-talk and it, very destructive to the person I would agree with her that nobody needs guilt like that. But that's not contrition. Contrition is the determination that I've done wrong and I want to make good and be reconciled to God and the people that I love. And it doesn't require the burden of psychological guilt, but it does require saying I'm sorry. And sometimes people don't want to do that. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, filling in so graciously today for Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for getting us off to a great start on another week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until then, God bless. <laughs>